0: Hey there! Two things before we begin. One is that this episode is a little based off of listener questions that I have kind of compiled together into one central question, which is, why is it that history is so violent? which I know is a really broad question, so this might seem a little rambly of an episode, but I try to tie it all together to one of the most infamous executions of all time. So I hope you enjoy it, and you can leave any sort of comments or reviews that you like on our social media, particularly Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Second is that if you don't follow us already, check us out on the Gritty Pass subreddit or on Facebook, High Crimes in History. Both of those places, we try to post at least three or four times a week secondary and primary resources about gritty history, and not just about crimes and criminals. I'm not one of those people who likes to follow other pages, especially when all they do is advertise their own stuff. But I promise you, that's not our pages. So if you enjoy the type of history that we feature in these episodes, then you'd really enjoy our social media pages. So check us out at the subreddit, The Gritty Past or on High Crimes and Histories page on Facebook. All right, on with the show.
1: Today's episode is based off the works Violence in Early Modern Europe by Julius Ruff, Seeing Justice Done by Paul Friedland, The Spectacle of Suffering by Peter Spierenberg, and Seven Generations of Executioners by Henri Clement Sanson. This episode contains graphic descriptions of violence that are not suitable for everyone. Please use discretion before listening.
0: Do you ever wonder why we, as a species, Are drawn to violence? Hell, if you're listening to this right now, you've become an audible spectator to violence, removed hundreds of years from the events, but you're still here. Do you find that strange? That you're listening to descriptions of violence at least partly for entertainment? I mean, I get it. It's not wholly for fun. In fact, I push really hard against the idea when I record this podcast, If you listen frequently, you know I'm all about connecting the past to the present, learning from history, the usual. But, let's be honest, part of us is also drawn to violence. Violence is unusual. It's titillating. There's something almost primal to it. Now, if you don't believe me or you're offended, I totally understand. I study violence and history for professional academic work, And I have my own reasons for that, which I will go into in an upcoming episode, but that sort of reaction doesn't really surprise me. I get it all the time when someone asks, oh, what do you research? And I respond, oh, executioners. The look says it all. It says, that's weird, but I do want to hear more. That sums up our relationship to violence today. That's, insert your negative attitude. Awful, disgusting, weird, tragic, disturbing, etc. But... I want to hear more. It's why violent films make the most money. Why true crime is an exploding genre. Why news anchors always lead with the grisliest stories. And I have a theory as to why that is. Because I think we'd all agree that true everyday violence, that is, violence in your own life, in front of you, that affects you or those you love, that's awful. But if we feel that we are removed far enough, our fear or disgust or whatever negative feeling you want to insert there, becomes overridden with curiosity. And I'd argue that's not inherently human. It's not biological. It's societal. I think it's built into Western society because of our history. What happens if you have a culture that doesn't just permit violence, but revels in it? What happens when you have a judicial system that doesn't just endorse violence, but promotes it. What happens when society hungers for violence? That might sound crazy, like something out of Mad Max, but it's not. It's how Western society operated for almost its entire history. Until 200 years ago, we engaged with our violent world using violence. The state, religion, relationships, all were predicated on the belief that violence could solve society's woes. In doing so, it perpetuated the systemic violence of Western history. Violence wasn't just the problem, it was the answer. And I think it might inform why we are still obsessed with violence today. I'm Trevor Rhodes, and this is High Crimes in History.
1: Today's episode of High Crimes in History is sponsored by Best Fiends. Do you ever find yourself sick of browsing social media and reading the news? Best Fiends is a casual, free-to-download game that anyone can play. And best of all, you don't need the internet to play. It's the perfect game to play when traveling on an airplane or in the passenger seat. Personally, we find ourselves playing when we have downtime in our day, like waiting in the checkout line, riding in the car, or during our lunch break. We also love all the cute fiends and special costumes we can unlock. I've been playing non-stop. I'm level 277 and haven't slowed down yet. There's new events every month that keep you coming back for more. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this 5-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends.
0: On March 28th, 1757, Robert-Francois Damien, the attempted assassin of King Louis XV, was executed in the most grisly public execution of the 18th century. In the morning, he awoke in the Bastille to the executioner, Gabriel Sanson of the Sanson family, who we have discussed in previous episodes. Gabriel was a substitute for Charles Jean-Baptiste Sanson, who was sick and in bed. Charles Henri, only 17, accompanied Gabriel. They read him his sentence in front of a small crowd in the grand chamber of the Bastille. After a little food and wine... Damien was tortured and questioned for an hour and a half. His feet were placed in boots, designed to be pulled shut with strings, tightening and crushing the bone. After this overwhelming torture, he was taken to the Place de la Grève, where a scaffold was set up. He was to be tortured again, with hot pincers, before being drawn and quartered. The Memoirs of the saint describe his execution from their point of view. Quote, The stove in which the sulfur burned, mixed with hot coals, filled the atmosphere with its acrid vapors. Damien coughed several times then. While the valets bound him on the platform, he looked at his right hand with the same expression of sadness that had manifested on his face when he considered his legs after the torture. He murmured a few shreds of litanies and said twice, What have I done there? What did I do there? The arm was firmly fixed on a bar so that the wrist exceeded the last plank of the platform. Gabriel Sanson approached with the blaze, the hot tongs. When Damien felt the bluish flame bite his flesh, he uttered a dreadful cry and twisted in his ties. The first pain passed, he raised his head and watched his hand burn without showing his pain otherwise than by the grinding of his teeth, which you could hear chattering. This first part of the ordeal lasted three minutes. Charles-Henri Sanson had seen the stove wavering in the hands of his uncle. By the sweat which flooded his face, his pallor almost as great as that of the patient. With the shivers which agitated his limbs, he understood that it would be impossible for him to carry out the torture. He offered a hundred pounds to one of the valets if he agreed to do it. A man named André accepted. He began to carry his dreadful instrument over the patient's arms, chest, and thighs. With each bite, the time the iron jaw removed a shred of flesh, and André poured into the gaping wound the burning oil, sometimes the burning resin, the molten sulfur, or the molten lead, presented to him by the other valets. We then experience something that language is powerless to describe, that the mind can barely conceive, something that has its counterpart only in hell, and that I will call the exhilaration of pain. Damian, eyes disproportionately out of their sockets, spiky hair, crooked lips, stimulated tormentors, challenged their tortures, provoked new sufferings. When his flesh screamed in contact with the burning liquids, his voice mingled with this odious shudder, and this voice, which was no longer human, howled. Again! Do it again! However, these were only the preliminaries of the torture. They descended Damien from the platform, and they placed them on a frame which was three feet high and which represented a cross of St. Andrew. Then we tied a horse to each of his members. During these preparations, the unfortunate man stubbornly held his eyes closed. The venerable parish priestess of St. Paul, who had not abandoned him, approached and spoke to him. He signaled to her that he heard her, but he did not open his eyes. It seemed as if he no longer wanted his gaze, which was going to meet God, to be stained by the sight of the barbarians who inflicted such torments its miserable body. From time to time, he cried out, Jesus! Mary! To me! To me! As if he had asked them to snatch him quickly from his executioners. A helper had grasped each horse's bridle. Another helper had placed behind each of the four animals a whip in hand. Charles-Henri Sanson stood on the scaffold, dominating all of his men. At his signal, the dreadful horses rushed forward. The effort was great because one of the horses fell on the pavement. However, the muscles and nerves of the human machine had resisted this awful jolt. Three times the horses, stimulated by the cries by the whip, gave full collar, and three times the resistance brought them back. It was noticed that the patient's arms and legs were disproportionately long, but he was still alive, and the sound of his was heard, breathing, shrill, like the groan of a forge bellows. The executioners were dismayed. The parish priest of St. Paul had passed out. The clerk hid his face in the toga, and you could hear the muffled murmur that precedes thunderstorms running through the crowd. Then, Mr. Boyer, the surgeon, having rushed towards the Hotel de Ville and having announced to the commissioner judges that the dismemberment would not take place if one did not help the efforts of the horses by amputation of the big nerves, the necessary authorization was reported. We had no sword. It was with an axe that André made incisions in the armpits and knuckles on the thighs of the unfortunate. Almost immediately, the horses removed the limbs— One thigh was detached, first, then the other, then an arm. Damien was still breathing. Finally, when the horses stiffened, on the only member left, his eyelids were raised, his eyes turned to the sky, his shapeless trunk had died. When the valets detached these sad remains from the cross of St. Andrew to throw them in the blaze, we noticed that the patient's hair, which was brown when he arrived at the Place had turned white as snow. Such was the torture of Damian. End quote. Sometimes it's easy to step into someone's shoes, to see the world from their view. This is not one of those moments. Trying to explain how our current society perceives violence is already a difficult task. Imagine trying to explain to an alien from Mars why humans persist in global warfare in the face of climate change or a nuclear holocaust. We can't explain it to ourselves, so try explaining it to an outside observer. But how do we explain Damien's execution? From our modern sensibilities, it's barbaric. It's horrifying. There's no reason, morally, that we could contend that this execution was equitable to his crime. But what makes this execution even more disturbing is that over a 100,000 people came to watch Damien be pulled apart alive. Two months before the execution, the Gazette d'Amsterdam crowed, Never has a spectacle had as many spectators as Damien's punishment will have. Rich nobility bought rooms or windows overlooking the scaffold. One shoemaker rented his room with three windows for 300 livres, Others rented them for 360 livres per window. People tore down their roofs and built balconies or amphitheaters to rent out. People stayed out overnight to secure their spots, brought picnics to dine on as they would watch. Many brought binoculars they were so far away. Those who couldn't afford a spot at the Place were forced to watch as Damien made his way to the execution site by cart, a process that took hours. When the torture finally began on the scaffold around 4 p.m., the crowd was excited. But there are no reports of shouting or crying or anything of the sort. Instead, they watched in earnest. Down below, one man broke through a barrier that had been placed to keep spectators away. He isn't mentioned in the Sanson's account. Another spectator, though, who witnessed him reported, quote, He broke away through the crowd, right up to the executioner, and there, notebook and pencil in hand, at each application of the pincers or strike of the iron bar, he asked, shouting at the top of his voice, what did he say? The aides of the executioners, thinking him an intruder, wanted to get him out of the way, but the executioner said to them, leave him be. The gentleman is an amateur, end quote. An amateur, an admirer. 100,000 people were admirers. When Damion's left thigh separated from his body, the crowd finally made a collective noise. They applauded. This execution is just one of tens of thousands performed all throughout Western history, but the reason I chose this one is because it serves as both the tipping point and the beginning of our discussion. The crest of violence as entertainment, of a people so numb that they would make a day of watching a man be torn to pieces. Now let's be clear, humanity has always been fascinated by violence. We still are today. The most profitable films, TV shows, books, video games are violent ones. And I think we can also agree that there's an undercurrent of entertainment in real-world violence—consuming true crime, watching online snuff films, rubbernecking an accident. But notice that in both fiction and real-world violence, it's only when it's detached enough from ourselves that we engage it as spectacle. We're simultaneously fascinated with it and horrified by it. It forces us to confront our own mortality and the fleetingness of life in others. That's titillating, thrilling, and petrifying, all in one. So can we apply that same reasoning to the spectators of Damien's execution? Certainly. They came for the spectacle of suffering. But there's also a history there that contextualizes how they got there. How we've gotten there. I'd argue that our lust for violent exhibition is not inherent in human nature— it was built into us through our Western values and societal systems of justice, religion, shame, honor, and entertainment. And Damion's execution was just the pinnacle of all of these coming together. So what do I mean by this? Well, let's rewind time back 3,000 years before the execution. Ancient laws of the Middle East and Mediterranean first emerged around 1750 BC with the Code of Hammurabi. We've discussed it slightly in this podcast. It's a Babylonian code of law inscribed on pillars and tablets to be displayed in public areas of Mesopotamian cities. I'm not going to go super in-depth with the law, although that could probably make for a fun episode, but by looking at it in general, a few trends emerge. First, the majority of the law concerns two areas, property and relationships. For example, a typical law says something like, quote, if anyone take over a field to till it and obtain no harvest therefrom, it must be proved that he did no work on the field, and he must deliver grain just as his neighbor raised to the owner of the field. End quote. So the law stipulates a contract between a laborer and an owner, and subscribes a punishment if the labor doesn't work the field. Or another law, quote, if a man takes a wife and she bears him no children, and he intend to take another wife, if he takes this second wife and brings her into the house, this second wife shall not be allowed equality with his wife. End quote. So this law sets up what a hierarchy is in in a polygamous marriage. Get the idea? Property and relationships. To add to this, Hammurabi assumes justice is transgressional meaning that if someone does wrong to another, then a punishment must be meted out, typically, and this is important, by the party who was wronged. The most famous law is an example of this. Quote, if a man destroys the eye of another man, they shall destroy his eye. If one breaks a man's bone, they shall break his bone. End quote. Notice that it's they, by which it means the other party, not the the state. The other party does the eye-poking, or bone-breaking. This was known as the law of retribution. Lex talionis. Eye for an eye. A punishment or penalty inflicted on another demanded a proportional response. Now, if you've read the code, you know that it doesn't really seem very proportional oftentimes. For example, one law reads, quote, If a man be guilty of incest with his daughter, he shall be driven from the place. End quote. But only a few lines down, it then reads, quote, If anyone be guilty of incest with his mother after his father, both shall be burned. End quote. So, like, wait, a father having incest just gets him kicked out, but mud- a mother and a son would get burned? Or, Another one is just underneath the eye for an eye law. It goes on to say, quote, if he put out the eye of a man's slave or break the bone of a man's slave, he shall pay one half of its value, End quote. So obviously, it's not quite proportional the way we in postmodern society think of as proportional. Namely, that it's equal. But proportionality in ancient law, in most of history, is not about equality. It's about the proper hierarchy, proper relationships. It's about where a person is in relation to everything else. So if you transgress against someone above your class or equal to it, that's proportionally different than transgressing someone underneath you. And besides, often the punishment included a symbolic, proportional response. So, for example, if a breastfeeding nurse swapped two different children, their breast would be cut off. Or if a son struck his father, his hand was cut off. The symbolism, then, played a role in the punishment. So, flash forward to Roman law, we see the same thing. The Theodosian Code, written in the 4th century AD, is similarly symbolically proportional in response. So, for example, a person convicted of sodomy would have to, quote, expiate a crime of this kind in avenging flames in the sight of the people, End quote. But one difference in Roman law is that the punishment was often meted out by the state, or society as a whole. Some of the more famous punishments during this era include public stoning for adultery, or decimation in the Roman army, in which one person of every ten soldiers was chosen by lot to be killed by the other nine. In both instances, it's all of society that participates. It tells us that the philosophy of justice was that it was society that had been transgressed, not the individual victim. As Rome fell, and its former territories descended into a more chaotic societal environment, extrajudicial peacemaking began to take the place of judicial mediation. And when there was a law, it was again a law of restitution. Paul Friedland writes, In the absence of strong central governments intent on punishing wrongdoing, Act that we today might characterize as crimes were instead dealt with as instances of one party harming another. Injured parties or their surviving kin could seek redress through compensation, which was not simply intended to pay off the victims, but in and of itself was a way of righting wrongs. End quote. So, in other words, it's a kind of penal payback. That is, a criminal has to pay for their crime. Part of the purpose of punishment, then, is as payment. So to recap all of this, by the Middle Ages, a philosophy of justice emerges. That punishment for a crime must be, above all, proportional in response, a form of payment, and often involves symbolism. Add to this something we haven't even touched upon, that punishment is mostly public. It's done by the public, or with public witnesses, And there's a lot of reasons why historians argue this was necessary. Some argue that it was in order for restitution to actually be completed, it needed to be public. Others, mostly older historians, argue it was like a form of deterrence by the state. Basically, hey, you see this guy being thrown to the lions? He's a criminal. Don't be like this guy. But what's important is that in the cases of extreme crimes, for justice to be done, punishment must be made public. So if early judicial systems in history assumed that justice required a proportional response for crimes committed, then violent crimes required a violent response. Or, it doesn't even have to be violent. As we've kind of explained, if it threatens the livelihood or life of someone, it might require a response that proportionally is violent. So for example, most judicial systems throughout history made thievery or robbery a capital crime. For us today, that seems overkill, but for most of history, people didn't own much property. So stealing a milk cow or someone's blacksmith tools could endanger a person's livelihood completely to the point where that family might live or die based on what was stolen. So it makes sense that a proportional retribution requires a violent response. This is the world for most of Western history, one in which justice is vengeful. It's inherently violent. Now, this is something that's very important. If it sounds like I'm making a mountain out of a molehole, think of it this way. Imagine that your philosophy of what makes justice is bound to the idea that in most cases, violent actions breed a violent response. Violence becomes a necessary part of life. Compare that to today, where violence is the last resort in the judicial system. It's the last part of our sense of justice. The reason why we balk at the idea of an execution like Damian's is not only because it does not seem proportional to us. Torturing and pulling someone apart using horses seems excessive no matter what crime they committed. But for us, if we did prescribe capital punishment, it's behind closed doors with a needle... With medicine that basically puts them to sleep. Or at least, that's what we hope happens. So in other words, our version of justice does not include this violent facet of life. But to the people of most of history, it did. Domion's execution was for parricide, for attempting to kill King Louis XV. To them, this was a proportional response. And that's important. Because again, if that's parricide, then what's just like an everyday insult? Now, we're just talking about right now the judicial reason for an increase in violence, but there's other systems in place that bred violence throughout history. For example, let's take that idea of being insulted. For a good portion of Western history, especially the Middle Ages through to the 19th century, honor was an important facet of everyday society. We still have leftover traces of the concept of honor today. For example, if someone insults you, many people consider it fair to insult them back. But our idea of honor is nothing like it was for most of history. You see, honor was something of like a social asset, like owning stocks or savings. It wasn't something you could really spend, but it was something you could earn over time. It determined your social status and your family's social status. It was intricately tied to your relationships, so as your honor increased, so too did your families. You could marry into another family, and increase your standing. Taking certain jobs, performing certain tasks, gained honor. And the more honor you had, the more important you were. But honor was also easily lost, and when it was lost, it was almost impossible to earn back. A single shameful act could set back an entire family for generations in their social standing. Take, for example, if you were slapped by somebody in public. That single shameful moment would mean your daughters might not be able to marry someone of a similar status. Your son might not be able to gain guild access in their work. One historian, and I'm blanking on who it was, so so my apologies, But they called it a severe loss of honor, a civil death. That's how important honor was. In fact, in almost every European society, there was a similar concept of, different countries called it different things, but in English it would be infamy. Infamy was when someone is so dishonored that they become literally untouchable, often second class citizens, or not citizens at all. To associate with someone who is infamous would transfer their infamy to you, thereby making you untouchable. So, those associated with uncleanliness or dishonorable occupations, like Jews, gypsies, butchers, surgeons, executioners, actors, their very touch would be so shameful that if, say, an executioner drank from a glass at an inn, the innkeeper would break the glass after he left to make sure nobody else accidentally drank from it. Honor is paramount in European history. Publicly shaming someone else could drop their status while simultaneously elevating yours. And if you were on the receiving end of a shameful act, like an insult or an altercation, there was little you could do to save face. Unless you escalated it in response Remember, for most of history, justice is eye for an eye, proportional response, and if a heavy loss of honor leads to a civil death, then it was common for someone to save themselves from such a civil death by using a proportionally violent response. Julius Ruff gives a common example of this in a single incident in the small town of Gensac in France on December 28, 1739. Quote, The brothers Pierre and Jean, both merchants, were drinking wine with friends in a cabaret, or tavern. The conviviality of the occasion quickly dissipated with the arrival of another merchant. The latter owed money to Pierre, who, in a room filled with local merchants, officials, and professional men, demanded payment. The verbal exchange grew increasingly heated, and Pierre struck the man with his walking stick. In response, the man drew a hunting knife with which he killed Pierre and gravely wounded Jean when he hastened to his brother's assistance. The man then fled the area, returning only in 1741 when a royal pardon set aside the death sentence imposed on him in absentia by the local court. End quote. Ruff points out that this is not a unique case. It's stating that the origins of most murders or assaults was the result of a petty squabble, such as this. And that's just what's reported. Ruff stated that unreported crime, or in anthropology it's known as dark figures, was much higher because there was a lot less incentives to report crime to the authorities compared to today. So, if we look at just the homicide rates— The averages from the 16th century on are at least 2 to 10 times higher than the homicide rate in the United States today, depending on what location it is and what era it is. People were well-armed for most of history. I mean, the weapon of choice, the blade, was ubiquitous. Everyone carried one, from a dagger to a longsword. So it's not surprising that escalation inevitably included bloodshed. Now, it might surprise us that petty squabbles might descend into violence all the time, but remember then, eye for an eye, proportional response, meant that, to save face, you might have to commit violence against someone else. In fact, it was considered honorable to do so. This is why the duel in nobility persisted for so long. When we look at Damian's execution, part of the reason it was required to be public was so that he could be publicly shamed. The very touch of the executioner would actually be enough to, I guess, give him the civil death. It would transfer all of the infamy onto him. And in fact, it's very common in reading executioner records that when somebody was touched, they were shocked. It was like the moment where they realized, oh God, I'm going to die. But not just like mentally I'm going to die, more of this like societal, oh, my whole family is going to be broken for generations from here on out. So honor and shame also helped build up this idea of violence as an answer, a correct answer, for most of history. And then to complicate all of this, there's also a degree to which religion helps foster violence in Western history. And I don't mean literal religious violence, that's its own shindig. I mean how religious beliefs about the body and the afterlife built up an importance in pain and the body. By the medieval period, the doctrines of Christianity had built in this understanding of bodily pain as a physical cleansing, that truth and atonement lay in pain. It's why people were willingly flagellants, beating and tearing their own flesh at the height of the Middle Ages to atone for the sins of humanity. It's also why torture became frequent in the Middle Ages. Pain brought forward the truth, and it could atone for one's sin. In fact, something that The public really doesn't talk about, but there's a distinction in how torture was applied. For example, you could apply it to elicit a confession in a trial. During most of the Middle Ages, it was believed that the confession from a suspect's mouth was the greatest evidence that a crime was committed. So naturally, if pain brings forward truth, then physically torturing a suspect could elicit a confession of guilt. One thing that isn't known by most people nowadays is that, while yes, torture was applied in medieval trials— it was quite a gamble. If the accused was able to make it through a torture without confession, that meant that they couldn't have done the crime because pain brings out truth. In fact, in most trials, torture was a very much a last resort because even if there was good circumstantial evidence of a crime, if the suspect resisted through the torture, they're free to go. So in other words, you could have a murderer who killed dozens of people, but if he could make it through a torture then he's perfectly fine. They would assume that he must not be the murderer, because, again, pain would have brought forward a confession of guilt if he was guilty. And then there's also a distinction in public displays of pain, such as public torture. That sort of torture wasn't done to elicit truth, but as a physical embodiment of atonement. Torturing a person on the scaffold helped begin the atonement process— And most criminals went along with the ritual during the Middle Ages because they were hoping that doing so secured their soul after death. That's one of the reasons why the public execution persists for so long. I find it quite fascinating. When you read especially early Middle Age executions, you find that people are there as not public spectacle, but really to be a part of a ritual of atonement. It becomes a religious rite. And you see pieces of it. For example, oftentimes, um, like in France, for example, uh, the people would have to perform, typically in Notre Dame, if it was in Paris, or another church in another city, some sort of last rites, kind of like a last confession. When they're on the scaffold, they would oftentimes give a last confession. And the entire time, a priest or priestess would be with them, both publicly proclaiming their sin and also trying to get them to repent. And for the most part... Murderers and criminals and all sorts went along with it. Now, this changes around the Reformation, as Lutherans and Calvinists begin to defy the ritual. Because, again, they think that they're going to heaven. They don't believe in Catholicism, so they're not really buying this part of the right. At that point, the idea of public execution began to change. It became this idea of to see if there's going to be a last-minute repentance. It's like a public suspense. Will the ritual go through or not? So they would go to the scaffold and and watch to see if this ritual would play out the way that they thought it would, or whether that person would go and die, and in their opinion, go to hell. By the mid-16th century, people are viewing these executions pretty detached from the ritual itself. In fact, by the 16th century, people are starting to think of it almost like a sport. The state continues to persist in public executions for a while, because, again, justice is eye for an eye. It requires a proportional response, and for most of Western Middle Age history, the idea of it as a religious ritual and as deterrence has held true. But the public no longer believes it that way. So, when we get to Damien's execution, people have now began to view violence as a sport, as spectacle. People were just detached enough from Damian's execution to be able to watch it with nothing more than a cold interest. Now, I understand that violence throughout history has many different forms, and of course there's been other times in history that violence has been entertainment, like the Roman gladiators, for example. But my point here is that Western history has a very unique evolution of what the concept is of justice and how we get from violence as justice to violence as entertainment. Time and time again, violence was the answer. First, as an answer for justice, then as an answer for social honor and shame, then religion, and finally entertainment. Now, why aren't we having public execution still today, you would say? Well, probably Damian. I mean, I'm not going to put it all on him. It's more just the idea of public executions in general started turning people off around this time period, but Damien's especially made waves. People all over Europe were very surprised, not so much at Damien's execution, but at the way that the crowd wanted to come and watch and see and do it with a detached interest as entertainment. Philosophers were already pushing for penal reform, but this was one of the moments that really shifted it. And it depends on what country you're in, when this shift exactly took place, but by 1850, the shift is there. People have moved from public executions to a prison system for penal reform. In other words, justice no longer is a proportional response using violence, but rather the prison system which has its own problems, if you ever want to read somebody who goes and dives really far into that, go read some of Foucault's Discipline and Punishment, it's a classic. But the public's love of violence still stuck around. It had been around for generations, for hundreds if not thousands of years. At the very first execution, they were printing pamphlets and newspaper articles that people read and ate up. This lust for violence as entertainment had been building for thousands of years, and it wasn't just going to go away in a few hundred years. And that brings us to today. I want to make sure that it's clear that I'm not trying to dilute this idea of violence as entertainment, as an answer to societal problems. I think that there's way more reasons and causes for it than just the ones I've listed. But the ones I've listed so far are the ones that I trace as one of the primary tendrils that gets us to today, where the R-rated movie is the one that sells the most tickets. And I'm not sure what I think about that. I'm not one of these people that says, let's ban all violent video games or anything like that. I perfectly feel that we are able to consume violence, at least on some point, as entertainment. And in fact, I almost think that it's the sort of narrative nowadays that we find it almost offensive to bring this up, because it's like saying, well, hey, look, we're, we're a little more civilized than they were in the past, right? But that kind of reeks of imperialism, westernization, post-enlightenment. It's the one that tries to grade people on a civilization scale, where the more civilized are up here, and the barbarians, the savages, everybody else in history is way down here. If we're looking at this from a 21st century point of view— Through a 21st century lens, what we consider, quote, civilized, isn't necessarily what was always considered, quote, civilized. What we consider moral isn't necessarily what was always moral. We are able to consume violence in mostly a fictional sense, through movies and television and books and video games. And for most of history, they didn't have that. And even if we want to say that we're like, well, maybe they could have created some of this themselves, we still consume non-fictional violence today. Like I said, the true crime genre, or news stories, except we just do it in a way that's a little more detached. I don't want this episode to be about me passing judgment on anybody, including ourselves and civilization, but I just want it to be a little introspective. If there's anything I want you to take away, it's this. Violence has been with us throughout history. And yeah, violence was a lot higher in the past. And maybe it's good that we've actually moved as a society to, for the most part, viewing entertaining violence through a fictional lens rather than real public spectacle. Maybe that's actually a good thing. But take this away society's rules aren't static, they're dictated by the culture that creates them. And that culture is not part of a bubble. It's part of an evolutionary trend that we've seen throughout history. And our love of violence in Western society has been there since the beginning. We're not much different than the people who watched Damien's execution a few hundred years ago. If anything, we're only a couple steps removed. If you think that those people were barbaric, well, maybe consider that next time we begin to think of violence as an answer to societal problems.
1: High Crimes in History is produced, written, and edited by Trevor and Katie Rhodes. Music by Nick Wright. If you enjoy the show, please rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have recommendations for show topics or comments about the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook or find us at our website at highcrimesinhistory.com.